So today we're going to talk about certain questions connected with communicating with metaphor. Talked already about the existence of a special metaphorical content and if it exists, what determines the particular content that a metaphor has. And I mentioned in the first lecture that another relevant question concerns how that content is communicated. So whatever makes the case that the metaphor has the content that it does is one question, but there's also a question not unrelated necessarily of what speakers are doing when they communicate that special content. And I mentioned at the initial lecture that it's possible to communicate a propositional content by saying it. That's one way of doing so. But there are many other ways of doing so, both with language and without. And with language, you can communicate something by insinuating it without saying it, implying it, giving your audience to understand it, a whole variety of different ways. And so if we're thinking about what speakers are doing when they use metaphor, it's very natural to suppose that they are communicating something without saying it. So by saying one thing, they communicate something else. Romeo communicates that Juliet is beautiful, amazing, etc., but he doesn't say it. What he says is that Juliet is the sun. Not only is that just a very natural pre-theoretical view, uh, it's quite, it fits very well uh, with the most influential view of how we communicate things without saying them, that of Paul Grice. And if you're not familiar with Grice, uh, I'm going to go over his views on how we communicate certain things without saying them, and how metaphor seems to fit in very nicely with that. Then I'm going to consider some problems with this view that have been raised in recent years. And in the second half of the lecture, I'm going to go on to the question of whether what speakers communicate with metaphor, however it is they do it, could be communicated without metaphor, and in particular in a paraphrase, a non-metaphorical paraphrase. So Grice's view, uh, well, it, sh it should be said, first of all, Grice introduces a technical term right away, which is the term implicate to cover a range of ways of communicating things without saying them. So rather than distinguish between insinuating, implying, conveying without saying, so on and so forth, he says, I'm going to use the technical term, I'm going to coin this word implicate. I don't know if he actually coined it or not, but uh, he's going to use this as a term of art to cover these. And so Grice begins with this observation. He says that in a conversation, participants are normally expected to observe what he calls a cooperative principle. And I've listed that on your handout because he states it in a rather convoluted way. And the cooperative principle of conversation states, 
Make your conversational contribution such as is required at the stage at which it occurs by the accepted purpose of the talk exchange in which you are engaged. That's what it amounts to, to be cooperative in a conversation, to contribute in such a way as is required by the accepted purpose of the conversation. Now, Grace admits that conversations are certainly not formal things uh, all the time, in which there's some explicitly stated purpose to them. Quite frequently, they're very casual, the purposes are very indefinite, they change as the conversation shifts, so on and so forth. But nevertheless, even in those kinds of casual conversations where the purposes are indefinite and shifting, there are some possible conversational moves uh, that would be unsuitable to the conversation because either irrelevant to what you're talking about uh, or otherwise unsuitable to the purpose of the conversation at that stage. And to get a more specific sense of this, uh, it's worth thinking about some of what Grace calls the conversational maxims that he takes to be corollaries of the cooperative principle. So some corollaries of the cooperative principle include the following maxims. Make your contribution to the conversation as informative as is required. Be relevant. And do not say what you believe to be false. So these are some ways, by violating maxims like these, in which one, depending on the purpose of the conversation at least, could fail to be cooperative in the conversation. Saying something irrelevant, saying something you believe to be false, not being informative enough, so on and so forth. So this, as I say, it, these are norms that normally govern conversations, according to Grace. And it's on the basis of these claims that Grace develops an account of how it is that we communicate things, one thing by saying another. So Grace observes that it's fairly common in conversation, even when the participants are still being cooperative, to flout these conversational maxims that he's identified. So you flout a conversational maxim when you're saying that P blatantly fails to fulfill the maxim in question. So in an example calculated to be remembered by philosophers, he imagines someone writing a letter of reference for a philosophy graduate student in which the referee says only, Mr. X has excellent command of English and his attendance at tutorials has been regular. Sincerely yours, Mr. So-and-so. Now, this blatantly fails to be as informative as required, as is required by the purpose of this exchange in a letter of reference, that they have an excellent command of English and attend to tutorials regularly is not informative enough for this. So <clears throat> the important thing, though, is that you can flout a conversational maxim without simply being uncooperative. 
So obviously, if you're interrogating a criminal, they might be very uncooperative and flout the maxims. Those are not the cases that in interest Grice. There are cases in which, even when you're being cooperative, you flout these maxims. So take the case of the letter of reference. Sometimes, when we flout a maxim, as in this case, the hearer is entitled to assume that we are still being cooperative. So in the case of the letter of reference, Grice says, the referee could have simply refused to write the letter if he'd wanted to be cooperative. So there's no reason to, if he wanted to be uncooperative, rather. So there's no reason to suppose that in having written this, he's being uncooperative. So the hearer has to make certain assumptions in order to reconcile what the speaker said with the further assumption that the speaker is being cooperative. So, as Grice puts it, the hearer can make our saying that P, in situations like this, he can make our saying that P consistent with the assumption that we're being cooperative only by supposing that we think that Q, so that we think something else other than what we said. So in the case of the writer of the letter of reference, if he's being cooperative, then the referee must be talking about Mr. X's command of English and attendance of tutorials because he thinks X is a bad philosopher but is unwilling to say it in the letter. This supposition about the referee's beliefs makes his saying that Mr. X attends tutorials regularly consistent with the assumption that uh, he's still being cooperative. And when certain other conditions obtain, which I won't get into here, we can thereby communicate that Q by saying that P, when our saying that P flouts these maxims. So in the case of the writer of the letter of reference, this person succeeds in communicating that Mr. X is a bad philosopher by saying that he attends tutorials regularly and has an ex excellent command of English and nothing more. Because, as I say, the supposition that that's what the writer believes is needed to make sense of what he said, make it consistent with the assumption that he's still being cooperative and he's not just opting out and being uncooperative. So when we do this, this is one way, says Grice, in which, as he puts it, we conversationally implicate something by saying something else. The writer conversationally implicates that Mr. X is a bad philosopher by saying merely that his command of English is excellent and his attendance at tutorials has been regular. Okay, so now it's striking that that's not a case of metaphor or indeed any figurative language. This occurs all over the place. Um, and Grice gives a large set of cases in that paper that I've listed on the handout. One of the cases that he gives is metaphor, though. And a metaphor user seems to flout another maxim or two. Notably, in many cases, 
a metaphor user flouts the conversational maxim, do not say what you believe to be false. So, Romeo <clears throat> clearly does not believe that Juliet is the son, literally, but that's what he says. And yet, often when metaphor users do that, they're not merely being uncooperative. And we're entitled to assume that they are still being cooperative. So in Grice's example, saying, you are the cream in my coffee, blatantly fails to fulfill the maxim, do not say what you believe to be false. However, in such cases, the hearer is entitled to assume that the speaker is being cooperative much of the time. So the only way of making the speaker's utterance consistent with this assumption, says Grice, is by supposing that the speaker is attributing some features in respect of which the person addressed resembles more or less fancifully, he adds, the cream in their coffee. And the supposition about what, they're, uh, what they believe about that person or attributing to that person ends up being what they conversationally implicate with the metaphor. So just as you can flout the maxim, be as informative as is required, in the letter of reference case, and communicate something further than what you say, so too, in the case of metaphor, according to Grice, you can flout the maxim, do not say what you believe to be false, and thereby communicate something further than what you say. And it's worth noting that other metaphors seem to fit this model pretty well, too. So it's sometimes pointed out that some metaphors are not false, but are literally true, such as no man is an island. That works fine on a Gricean picture. Uh, that flouts, I mean, depending on the context, all kinds of maxims. Be relevant would be one in the context of Dunn's sermon. Uh, and be as informative as is required, perhaps, might be another. So not only is it pre-theoretically plausible to think that a speaker communicates something by saying something else with a metaphor, it also fits very nicely with this much broader theory of Grice's of how speakers do this in all kinds of other contexts. But as usual, there are objections. And many of these have been raised in the last 10 or 15 years in the literature on this. One of them uh, is by David Hills. Hills points out that it's not possible, or as he puts it, infelicitous, rather, to disagree with a conversational implicature in the ways in which it is possible to disagree with the metaphor, and in particular to dissent from the metaphorical content of the metaphor, the special content of the metaphor. So in his example, uh, if somebody were to conversationally impl implicate that the candidate is a terrible philosopher by saying she has beautiful handwriting and nothing else, you cannot register your disagreement with the claim that she's a terrible philosopher by simply replying, no, she doesn't, in response to the statement that she has beautiful handwriting. 
By contrast, though, you can disagree with what Romeo is getting at when he says Juliet is the son by replying, no, she's not. And you're not making the flat-footed claim, as we mentioned before, uh, that she is not the big celestial ball of gas that we see every day. You can disagree by saying simply, no, she's not, with the claim that she's amazing, beautiful, impressive, and so forth. But that is not the case, according to Hills, in cases of conversational implicature. Uh, simple reply like, no, she's not, or no, she doesn't, in the case of the handwriting, is appropriate to what is said. That's a way of dissenting from what is said, or at the very least, more modestly, it's not appropriate to what's conversationally implicated. So if you implicate that she's a terrible philosopher by merely saying, well, she has beautiful handwriting, you can't say disagree with the claim that she's terrible at philosophy by saying, uh, no, she doesn't have beautiful handwriting. So that's one difficulty that's been raised for modeling metaphor on conversational implicature, regarding it as a case of conversational implicature. Another objection has been raised by Catherine Waring. And she says that, well, on the Gricean view, a conversational implicature is implicated by what is asserted. But it's possible for a metaphorical interpretation of something you say to occur in unasserted contexts. So she says, suppose that Mercutio comes along and says, Romeo believes that Juliet is the son. In a case like that, Mercutio does not assert that Juliet is the son. He is reporting Romeo's belief. And that's all. But on the Gricean view, according to Waring, an implicature is generated by asserting something, by what you assert, rather than what you, uh, rather than things you say in unasserted contexts. So says Waring, this poses a problem for the view of metaphors as cases of implicature. Because if it were implicated, it would be implicated by the bit that's not asserted in what Mercutio says, namely the bit, Juliet is the son. And so, says Waring, that's a serious problem here for Grice. And lastly, Severn Schroeder has raised the objection that metaphorical content is not, to use Grice's term, cancelable. So, according to Grice, the test for the presence of a conversational implicature, the test that something's being implicated rather than said, is that, as he puts it, it's possible to cancel it. So you might say, she has beautiful handwriting, in appropriate context, and then add, but I don't mean to suggest by that that she's not also a great philosopher. If you hadn't canceled it, the implicature would have been there. 
and the fact that you had to cancel it to keep it from being communicated, and that it's possible to cancel it to keep it from having been communicated, indicates, says Grice, that the, the claim, she's a terrible philosopher, would have been implicated in that case rather than said. Because you can't cancel what you say in the same way. So you can't go, she has terrible handwriting, but she doesn't have terrible handwriting. Or, she has terrible handwriting, but I don't mean to suggest that she has terrible handwriting. That's not on. Content of what you say is not cancelable in that way. So that's the standard test for whether something's implicated, rather than said. But Schroeder claims that metaphorical content is not like this. So in his example, you cannot say to someone, true, I called you a louse, but I didn't say anything insulting. That, says Schroeder, is not possible. That creates a problem, again, for Grice, for modeling these metaphors on conversational implicatures. Uh, now, I don't really know yet what I think of at least the first two of these three objections. Uh, but it occurs to me that there is a counterexample to Schroeder's objection uh, in a well-known Monty Python sketch. I don't know what it's entitled, but it involves a dinner party held by Oscar Wilde for the Prince of Wales, James McNeil Whistler, and George Bernard Shaw. And at this dinner party, Whistler and Wilde keep saying to the Prince of Wales that the other person, or Shaw in some cases, compared the Prince of Wales to various horrible things. And then the person who is accused of having compared him to various horrible things has to get out of it in a plausible way. So in one case, Whistler says to the Prince of Wales, Your Highness, you are also like a stream of bat's piss. And the Prince of Wales says, What? And Whistler blames Oscar Wilde, and Wilde says, No, it wasn't me, it was Shaw. So Shaw is really embarrassed, but he says, Well, I merely meant, Your Majesty, that you shine out like a shaft of gold when all around is dark. Shaw has cancelled the apparent implicature of what he had said when he compared the king to a stream of bat's piss. Now, I know someone is apt to point out here, this was a simile. But it doesn't seem to make a difference, because if you'd used a metaphor, it would be perfectly all right to cancel it in the very same way. And, in fact, on Schroeder's view, it shouldn't make much of a difference, because as we saw last week, on his view, metaphors are comparisons. Uh, so it does seem to be possible to cancel certain contents of the metaphor. Uh, you could even have imagined somebody saying, true, I called you a louse, but I didn't mean to say, any but I wasn't saying anything insulting, and then go on to explain what they did mean. 
So it's not obvious that this is a problem. Now maybe Schroeder has a response to this. I'm not saying it's entirely uh, knockdown objection. Uh, but as far as I can see, it does seem to indicate that you can cancel metaphorical content. Now on the rest on the rest of the handout on the back there, I've indicated some other accounts of uh, how some other developments of the view that metaphors are not cases of implicatures, uh, but I'm not going to go through them in any detail here. You can pursue that further if you're interested. The second question I'd like to address then today is the question of whether the special content of a metaphor can be communicated in a paraphrase whenever you've got a metaphor. Now this has been a question that uh, has interested a lot of people. And I think there's a few reasons for this. So I think that one reason is that if some propositional contents can only be communicated with metaphor, if that turns out to be true, then it provides an interesting new answer to the question of how language and thought are related. So it's a venerable question as to whether everything that we can think can be put into language, whether we can express all our thoughts in language. And people have come down on different sides of this. But if it turned out that some thoughts can only be expressed in metaphor, for example, perhaps thoughts about how things feel or look, smell, taste, etc., if that turned out to be the case, well, that would provide an interesting twist on this venerable old question. It wouldn't imply that there are some thoughts that can't be expressed in language, but it would suggest that there are some thoughts that can't be expressed, well, it would imply, in fact, that there are some thoughts that can't be expressed in literal language, by speaking literally. Uh, it would have the rather surprising implication if metaphors are not cases of saying their special content, that there are some things you can express only by saying something else. That there are some truths even that you can express only by saying something false. Uh, which has a rather paradoxical sounding ring to it. Uh, at the very least, it's rather surprising. So the relation between language and thought, that is one thing that concerns people, I think, in looking at this question about paraphrasability. Another concern in this question concerns the value of metaphor. So it would seem that if some things can only be expressed in metaphor, then metaphor is particularly valuable, at least insofar as it's valuable to express those things. And this interests people because this suggests it's that, well, it suggests a very natural defense of the value of poetic uses of language. So for a long time, one issue about the value of poetry is whether it has any epistemic value, whether it's a source of knowledge, whether poetry, poets uh, 
who have often been compared to prophets and other similar insightful people over the years, uh, are genuinely sources of insight. Most famously, Plato vigorously attacked this view that poetry is any sort of special, special source of knowledge, insight, so forth. But if it were to turn out that some thoughts can only be expressed in metaphor, and if metaphor is a poetic use of language, then we'd have a very direct answer to people like Plato on their own terms. So that, again, is, I think, part of the attraction of this view. So this question, are there some metaphors that can, or are there some contents that can only be expressed in metaphor, some things we can only express, communicate, using metaphor, can be taken in a few different ways. So it's often phrased as the question, can metaphor be paraphrased? Can every metaphor be paraphrased? And you want to be clear uh, in asking this whether what we're considering is whether every metaphor can be given some paraphrase or other, or whether every metaphor can be given a literal paraphrase. Because it could be that some paraphrases are themselves metaphorical. The interesting question, I think, is whether every metaphor can be given a non-metaphorical paraphrase. So too, there is a question about whether we're asking if paraphrase is always possible in practice or if paraphrase is always possible in principle. So you might think, and as we'll see, Searle makes this distinction, that sometimes it's not possible, at least using the existing resources of our language, to say certain things that we can communicate with metaphor. But it would be possible in principle we could introduce those terms or resources into our language and say what we want to communicate, what we succeed in communicating with the metaphor. If that turned out to be the only way in which certain metaphors can't be paraphrased, I don't think that would be particularly interesting either. We introduce new terms into our language all the time, uh, and it's no surprise if sometimes metaphor gets there first, so to speak, uh, and can be used in lieu of uh, new coinage. So the interesting question I suggest is whether there are some contents that can be, that in principle can only be expressed in metaphor. Now on this question, on the yes side, John Searle suggests that any content that can be meant can be said. This is what Searle calls the principle of expressibility in his book Speech Acts. And he appeals to it in his later article on metaphor to suggest that it is always possible to find or to invent an expression that exactly expresses an intended metaphorical content. So Searle says, if the language happens to lack terms for what I mean, or devices for introducing 
those terms into the language. It's always possible, at least in principle, to introduce those terms or devices into the language. It's not always possible, he says, to express unintended metaphorical meaning using only the existing resources of our language. He says, in fact, this is one main reason why we often use metaphor, is because our language is inadequate to express what we want at the moment in literal terms. But he says, it follows from the principle of expressibility that anything that can be intended by a metaphor user could also be said, at least in principle. Anything they mean by using the metaphor could also be said. What's not possible, says Searle, or what he's not claiming is always possible, is to produce the same effects as the metaphor has. So the same literary or poetic effects as the metaphor, he says, would certainly be lost in a variety of paraphrases. And maybe metaphors, certain metaphors anyway, can only have those, are the only things that can have those effects while communicating that content. And so too, and this is related to that point, we can't reproduce in a paraphrase uh, the semantic content, so the content of what is said, according to Searle, in the paraphrase. That's just the nature of the thing. So if Romeo said that Juliet is the son, a paraphrase of what Romeo said won't also involve saying that Juliet is the son. At least if it communicates the same thing by saying it. So that's Searle's view. So the weakness and inadequacy of paraphrase to which Davidson appealed in some of his arguments, as we saw, and to which many people frequently point, at, point doesn't have to do with its not communicating the same content, but rather to its not having the same effects or not communicating that content in the same way as the metaphor did. Now, I think a problem with Davidson's view uh, here is that all he does, at least in the article on metaphor, is appeal to the principle of expressibility and say it follows from this that anything that can be meant can be said, therefore any metaphor can be paraphrased, at least in principle. But that's not so good. Uh, part of what's at issue here is the truth of the principle of expressibility. So it's not enough just to say that, well, that principle's true, so we don't have to do any more work in the case of metaphor. People who claim that certain metaphors are unparaphrasable are in effect claiming they are counterexamples to the principle of expressibility. So you need to engage with that rather than simply point back to that principle. Now, among those who've denied that certain metaphors can be paraphrased, I think it's necessary to draw a distinction that's not often drawn. So some people who say some metaphors can't be paraphrased don't think this because they think that metaphors communicate some proposition that can only be communicated with metaphor. So they hold both. Met some metaphors are unparaphrasable, and yet it's not because they communicate some content that could only be communicated with metaphor. Clearest example of a person who holds a position of this type is Davidson. 
Davidson says, I agree that metaphors can't be paraphrased. But that's just because there's nothing there to paraphrase. So remember, he thinks there is no special meaning or content to the metaphor. And at least in that part of his paper, that's how he's thinking of paraphrase as something that would communicate a special content or meaning of the metaphor. Trivially, it follows that metaphors can't be paraphrased. He says it's not because they communicate some special content that can't be put literally. A similar view of this kind, although it's held on very different grounds, is offered by Samuel Gutenplan in his book, Objects of Metaphor. So Gutenplan asks us to consider what paraphrase really is. And he says, well, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a paraphrase is a restatement of the sense of a passage in other words. So Gutenplan says, if this is what a paraphrase is, then it follows that only something that expressed a thought in words in the first place can be paraphrased. So he says, it's not possible to express something in other words than the original did, unless the original expressed that thought in words in the first place. He thinks this explains why photographs can't be paraphrased. It wouldn't make any sense to talk about paraphrasing a photograph, even though it does make sense to talk about what a photograph tells us, or what we can learn from it. And even though you can say, perfectly literal language, what a photograph tells you, or what you learn from it. Now, in Gutenplan's view, metaphors also don't express thoughts in words. Rather, Gutenplan says, metaphors, it's words in a metaphor that call on an object. And the object is part of what conveys the message. Now, it's not necessary to get into the details of that view here. Much of Gutenplan's book is devoted to making sense of how objects can function in this way. But... The point of it is that if you accept his theory, then it's not words that the thoughts are expressed in, in the metaphor. It's objects that are part of what convey the message. And so if a paraphrase is a restatement of the sense of a passage in other words, then that, he thinks, is why it's not possible to paraphrase a metaphor any more than it is to paraphrase a photograph. The other half of the view, though, is the one I distinguished at the start. So this, is, this kind of view is the view that the metaphors that can't be paraphrased are incapable of paraphrase because they communicate something that could not be communicated in any other way. Many people have defended a view of this kind, and I give some references on the back of the handout to people who I'm not going to discuss here today. Uh, I discussed these in the article I published last year, which is also listed on the handout, if you're interested in pursuing this further. But out of those people, I'm going to focus on the argument presented by Richard Boyd and built upon by Elizabeth Camp in a recent paper. So Boyd is a philosopher of science, and as I mentioned 
in the first lecture, a number of people have argued that metaphors have a very special role to play in science and in scientific reasoning. Boyd is one of them. So, and I'm following Camp's version of this argument. Camp asks us to suppose that a scientist is investigating something to which she does not have direct experiential access. So she can't experience it directly, such as certain cognitive processes involved in memory. So certain of these processes are not at the conscious level. You can't observe them in someone else. She's studying cognitive processes of this kind. So the scientist begins, Camp says, asks us to imagine, scientist begins to suspect that there is a property playing a certain causal role here. And she needs to identify this property. But suppose, Camp says, that she can't identify it by defining it in terms of its causal role because she doesn't know enough about its role yet. So she can't identify it as the property that causes such and such effects. Something like that. Nor again can she identify it ostensibly. So she can't identify it by pointing to it and saying it's that property there. And that's because she can't directly observe it. So she thinks there's something at work here having a certain kind of effect but she doesn't have enough information to identify it in either of those ways. Here, Camp says, metaphor can come in and enable her to identify the property that she is interested in. She can, for example, use the metaphor of, say, memory storage and retrieval as being the opening of a computer file. This is very familiar if any of you have done philosophy of mind. Computer metaphors are very common in uh, descriptions of the mind. In Camp's example, this enables the scientist to fix on that property, to identify it in her own mind when she can't define it or point it out. Being able to identify the property in this way actually enables her to have thoughts about it that she wouldn't be able to have, or to express thoughts about it, at the very least, that she wouldn't be able to otherwise. And as she goes on doing her research, Camp grants that she might establish some similarities between memory and the opening of computer file and rule out others along the way. And so eventually she might get a literal definition of what this property is. And then she could dispense with the metaphor. But at the initial stage, says Kemp, you need the metaphor in order to fix what you're thinking about, in order to identify the property in question. The metaphor of memory as the opening of computer file in this case. So the argument is that in situations like these, metaphor is the only way to express certain thoughts about the property. Now, I think a lot of these arguments are based on a confusion. I think a lot of them are based on the same confusion 
actually. So let's consider this case again. So what Camp describes as what the scientist is doing is considering which ways in which memory is similar to, different from, the process of opening a computer file. Whatever the metaphor enables her of that, of memory as the opening of a computer file, enables her to achieve here, she achieves by considering certain respects in which it's similar and testing to see if it's similar in that respect, ruling out some respects, confirming others, so on and so forth. Now I think it's quite evident that you don't need the metaphor of memory as the opening of a computer file to do that. What's true is that if you are going to be guided by the hypothesis that memory is like the opening of a computer file in certain respects, well, in order to state that hypothesis, or in order to be guided by it, you need the concept of opening a computer file. So in order to do what she's described, this concept is certainly indispensable. In order to do it, at least in the way she's described it, But I see no grounds for thinking that you actually have to use a metaphor in order to conduct research in this way. She gives us no reason to think that if you said literally, well, let's suppose that memory is like the opening of a computer file, or that the property in question, I suspect, is like the opening of a computer file in certain respects, and then you go through the respects that you think it might be like that. If you said that instead of using a metaphor, or thinking in metaphor, then you wouldn't be able to do this, whatever uh, what she has just described here. And I think this is frequently the case in these discussions of the indispensability of metaphor for these purposes. The writers in question, they pick a case in which the concept that figures in the metaphor, if we do use a metaphor, is indispensable for what they've described. But the metaphor itself is not. So you've got to use the concept in one way or the other, in, in some way, in order to do what has been described. But you don't need to use it in a metaphor in these cases. This also comes out I suggest, in cases in which advocates of this indispensability thesis allow that a metaphor might be dispensable for certain purposes. So many of the advocates of this view say that some metaphors are indispensable, but others are not. Others are dispensable for the purpose of communicating or expressing what we want. And I think it's striking that in some of the cases in which they allow that it is dispensable, those are clearly cases in which the concept that figures in the metaphor is also dispensable. So unlike the computer file case that we considered, in the cases that are often allowed to be dispensable metaphors, both the concept and the metaphor are treated as dispensable. So simple example uh, Roger Scruton gives. Uh, man is a wolf to man, Latin expression. He says this is a case in which 
The metaphor is dispensable. It's just a luxury, not a necessity, as Scruton puts it. And that certainly seems to be true. But it's striking that he picks on this, because all we convey, says Scruton, by this metaphor, are the facts about man's aggressiveness towards his fellows. And it's striking that in order to convey that, you don't need the concept of a wolf. You don't need to use the concept of a wolf in order to communicate that man is aggressive towards other men. And that too suggests that when people are fixating on these cases in which metaphor appears to be indispensable, what they're actually fixing on are cases in which the concept that figures in the metaphor is indispensable. It has to be used in a certain way in order to discover certain things or to communicate or express certain things. Uh, but using it in a metaphor is not itself necessary. Now what I want to stress here, and what I try to stress in that article, is that this does not imply that metaphor is of little value. So if the indispensability thesis is false, and I've only attacked certain arguments for it, I haven't demonstrated that it's false. But if it is false, that wouldn't show that metaphor is not an extremely valuable way of communicating. So metaphors can be imaginative, clear, vigorous, vivid, concise ways of expressing things and communicating certain thoughts. It's striking in the literature on this that that's not good enough for a lot of people uh, who attempt to defend the value of metaphor by arguing that it's indispensable for communicating or expressing certain thoughts. But that doesn't... I don't relate to that uh, felt loss of the value of metaphor if it turns out to be dispensable for the purpose of communicating the same thought. Because remember, it may well be that metaphors, certain metaphors, are more imaginative, clear, concise, vivid, vigorous than any other way of communicating the same thing. The mere fact that you can communicate the same thing in a dull, labored, rambling way doesn't show that the other way of communicating things with the metaphor is not valuable. So I think this question, although if this thesis of its indispensability were true, uh, would provide one way of defending the value of metaphor. I think it's a mistake to fall into the trap of thinking that in order for us to vindicate the value of metaphor, we need to give it a certain cognitive or epistemic value. That if it's valuable at all, uh, if it's worth paying attention to at all, it had better be valuable because it enables us to discover something or express something or communicate something that couldn't be discovered, expressed, or communicated in any other way. And I think that's behind a lot of, the, a lot of these views. Thanks very much. <laughs>